Welcome to Establish the Edge. Excited to have a special showdown episode this week. And if you are listening on the flagship Establish Your Own podcast feed, I want you to know this is a simulcast episode of Establish the Edge. My podcast is another free podcast we have um, in, in the Establish Your Own network. Uh, I am the King Spreadsheet Virgin, Mike Leone. If you're not used to hearing me on this feed, uh, you can check out Establish the Edge for more deep dives. They're going to be similar to the one we're doing on Showdown today, uh, but we have them on you know, Dynasty, Betting, DFS, Small Field Tournaments, all that stuff. So make sure you check out Establish the Edge on iTunes. And if you are watching this on YouTube, please give us a like. Uh, this episode today, I've got two Showdown goats joining me, Establish the Runs, Cody Main and Colin Drew, Drew B, formerly working with Sports Grid, uh, two of the best in the business. And we're going to attack this. It's close to the Super Bowl. So I figured we'd go through some high level strategy. We're going to mix in some Super Bowl specific nuggets, but the main goal is kind of like higher macro type strategy. So uh, I'll throw it to Drewby first. Drewby, thanks so much for coming out of Showdown Retirement and, uh, and joining me. Happy to be here, uh, especially with with you, Mike, and with one of the one of the main reasons I ended up retiring from Showdown and Cody. It's, uh, <laughs> tough scenes when someone who creates such good content gets a huge platform uh, from an edge perspective, but a lot of good discussions to be had. And probably the coolest thing about Cody is you can ask him any question. He's got all the data at his fingertips for Showdown, the true spreadsheet version of Showdown himself. <laughs> yeah, Cody, uh, thanks for joining me as well. Cody will have. I think, I think, is your Pro Bowl article up already? Yeah, I mean, I don't know why we're just straight up skipping past the, the <laughs> God's game. It's just skipping right into Super Bowl showdown is ridiculous here. We we have a Pro Bowl article up on the site. Um, it's obviously a ridiculous game. If you're playing it, it should be just for fun. But uh, yeah, we'll be firing. And if, if you guys want to fire off too, it's it's up on the site. But uh, a ton of fun over the next couple of weeks. A lot of a lot of showdown focused content and, and the contests are going to be really fun. Yeah, and next week, Cody will have his Super Bowl showdown breakdown, which is great. It has our projections, including our ceiling projections, the ownership projections. Cody's been dialed in a couple of weeks. I just like can't believe the R squared on the ownership projection. So that's always a huge help. Has the range of outcome stuff mixed in there, as well as some notes on roster construction. We'll talk about macro roster construction today. Before we get into too much nitty gritty, just like I don't want to talk to you guys how you got into your playing showdown and how you've seen the game evolve. I know for me, I used to play showdown a lot more um, than I, than I have this year. I played kind of sparingly, of course, looking forward to uh, degenning the super bowl, but it's, it, it definitely seems like it's changed quite a bit in terms, especially in terms of how sharp the field has been and like where your edge is at Colin. I know you, I'm just gonna call you Drewby, so I stopped mixing names. <laughs> Drewby, I know you had one of the probably craziest runs, not just in Showdown, but like in all of DFS that I've ever seen. I don't remember what year it was or exactly when it started, but I think it was like a Houston Texans Showdown slate you just smashed, and then it just like the momentum carried. Yeah, the the funniest thing is like if I dig back through my showdown roots, like the first thing I can find is an email that I sent to DraftKings responding to one of their offers to play showdown. Just like, no thanks, not interested in a single game format. Like, <laughs> this is, and then fast forward to like a year, two years later, and it was like easily my single best format in any sport. Um, and yeah, I had that two year run 
2018, 2019, I was winning a showdown like once a month, um, multiple six figure scores. But like if a month went by and I wasn't, I hadn't shipped a, sh- a showdown, it was surprising. And it was like chopping with like 10 people, you know, 15 people, but it was definitely like l- lowly duped um, wins too, which is totally different. I'd say the biggest thing that has changed in addition just to the content is people get better and under like uncover edges. I think when I first was playing, there were, you know, 15, 20, maybe 30 people who are 150 max in these contests. And now almost all of the pros are in there. A lot of casuals are in there. So you're competing against a lot more people who are 150 maxing. And that's a big change too, especially as people get kind of deeper into the player pool and a combination of those two things. Um, I was also obviously running just on the hottest possible edge of like the variant spectrum. So it was a combination of like access to tools before people had them, access to strategy that people didn't have, and then just running at like the 99th percentile on the positive variance scale. Yeah. What's crazy with Showdown is, I mean, it's almost winner bust if you're playing the big MME. I do kind of want to get like later on some of your guys' takeaways, how we can translate that to smaller field stuff. But, you know, your success, like you had to be binking these contests. You can't just finish pretty well because they're really top heavy and that's the nature of things. And, you don't have to hit the pure nuts, but you kind of got to be close. And and there's definitely some strategy tweaks you make when like hitting the nuts is actually on the table versus like a main slate DFS contest where hitting the nuts isn't on the table. You know, the, the leverage aspect's different. But Drewby, I felt like you really crushed early on with, you know, as you said, you were one of the first people to 150 max routinely, but you did it in a way that really maximized the correlation of your lineups, like doing a lot of really smart things. You know, if I have, you know, captain wide receiver, I want to make sure the quarterback's in the lineup or, you know, max like one of the two running backs. Um, and which is, of course, all this stuff's different slate by slate. But to me, one of the big changes seems to be like now that stuff that you did and really took advantage of seems to be a bit more commonplace. And it's almost like, reversed Very to yeah. how do how do i decorrelate in a smart way so that i'm i'm unique where like the decorrelated lineups that are are sharp are actually more likely to to be unique even if they're they're less likely to hit yeah the the field has been picking up the rules and correlations a lot more over the years the field also was originally overplaying quarterback substantially at captain and so the even small things like just playing wide receivers at captain was a, a pretty substantial edge that is shifted away. And I think the, you know, as I've evolved in my like thesis for showdown this year, it was kind of still using perfect correlation on really contrarian lineups. So lineups that have some flyers or leave a lot of salary on the table, still kind of sticking to rules there, but ultimately on, on lineups that uh, maybe are more popular in players or use more salary cap to, try to break some of those correlation rules, which again, is just going to introduce a bit more variance into your results, which is always tough to measure. Cody, you were at Establish the Run when I joined. You predate me at yeah, Establish the Run. I had to remind myself how far Drewby's run went back. Like, so I just, I just Twitter searched his name and then typed in showdown and I was scrolling back through his Twitter feed and it's just hundred thousand score after hundred thousand score after hundred thousand <laughs> score. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think the first podcast I listened to on showdown, like the first content I consumed was, was Colin. So, uh, I started in 2019 famously sending a, an, a cold email to establish their own support, like right after they had launched. Um, leading into the 2019 season. And then 
subsequently wrote 2000 words on the 2019 hall of fame game showdown slate. And I think at that point, like, I don't know who it was, Taylor or, or Wiggins or Adam, like decided I was crazy enough to, to at least let me come on board. And so, you know, I, I grinded preseason for them a little bit and, and for the site. And then I think they realized that I was crazy enough to take on showdown at that point. So I hadn't been playing showdown in 2018 at all. So, you know, Colin brings up like the, the content. And if you guys are following me on Twitter, like, you know, posting out, um, you know, top 1% rates and captain, you know, utilization and things like that. That was all just born out of my curiosity and like me trying to get better because I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a track record of being a winning showdown player. So just trying to establish a little bit of credibility, but um, you know, really from 2019 till now, like a lot of the things that you guys talk about with the field getting sharper and, and starting to use correlation more and, and making less obvious mistakes, which I think Drew, we can mention like, the field is just making bad lineups back in 2018. Like just they weren't doing the right things correlated correlation wise. They were doing things that we obviously shouldn't be doing. Um, now that's obviously reversed. So I think you have to kind of change course a little bit, but if you were playing in 2018 and in 2019 and just playing like good, good, smart correlated lineups, like, like Drew was, then you were probably pretty successful. But um, the whole, the whole landscape has seemed like it's changed over the last couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, before we move on talking about like mistakes and higher level thoughts, like, where do you think you've had the most success, Cody, playing showdown? Yeah, like I, I'm definitely not a football guy. Like if you're the king showdown spreadsheet or if you're the king spreadsheet guy, like I'm probably the prince spreadsheet guy at ETR. Like I'm definitely a data nerd and, and definitely more into following that aspect of it and roster construction and uh, macro trends. So I'm not good at picking sides. I'm not good at like discovering what type of wide receiver cornerback matchup is going to lead to like more usage for a, a particular wide receiver. So I, I'm more into um, trying to build as many good, strongly correlated, unique lineups as I can, and then kind of spreading out exposure uh, along a, a spectrum of how I think a game might come out. So like if I get a game script that I'm built, building for, then I've got a shot at a solo uh, winner. So large field, multi-entry tournaments, whatever, you know, whatever dollar, range that fits your bankroll like for me that's the you know ten dollars and below like if i can max those tournaments five ten three dollars uh and kind of spread out my exposure that way that's when i where i've been most successful i've gotten buried in single entry uh and i don't know if that's just small sample but like or if i'm just you know picking games wrong but uh i have not had near as much success in single entry i don't know if i'm building too unique for those type of fields to to have success but uh definitely like the multi-entry large field tournaments is where i feel most comfortable yeah. So one of the things I want to talk about is like the mistakes people are making in the, in the multi-entry large field tournaments. I've got a couple that I've written down one that I've hit on previously. I hit on it and established a million are on the two game slate, but I do feel like, and you guys feel free to disagree with me, but I feel like sometimes there's too much of focus on ceiling. You know, people are used to playing the main slate where you need these 90th percentile outcomes from players to really differentiate from your opponents and when you're talking about showdown in a single game like the game could suck and somebody still has to win you know no matter what the game output is there might not be you know a jamar chase going for seven you know 120 and two you know so there there's a very decent probability that no one's hitting like their 75th plus percentile outcome um and i do think some people overthink this ceiling not in terms of like not only in terms of individual player selection, but sometimes in terms of the correlation itself, where they're like, oh, I can't play Samaj P. Ryan and Joe Mixon because 
you know, they're negatively correlated because they're two running backs on the same team, which might be true if you're looking at their 90th plus percentile outcomes, but there's plenty of, you know, events where they both hit like their 60th percentile outcome. And that's like enough to get them in the lineup. So that's one that I felt was a mistake. The other one, and this is where I had a pretty good run that started after Drewby started kind of, I guess the talent of Drewby's run. And honestly, I think like 90 plus percent of the success of the run I had was I was playing onslaughts that people weren't playing. Like I was playing the five one, like five players from one team, one player from another team. And you actually put some data in our show notes, Cody, to kind of try and reflect the upcoming Super Bowl, but it's games between a three and a half and a five and a half spread. And basically, if you look at the percentage of lineups that play a five one stack, the top 1% lineup is like positively leveraged, whether it's the underdog team or the favorite team. So it seems like that still might, might be the case a little bit. So any thoughts on, on that, Cody, with the roster construction stuff? Yeah, and this goes back to like the, the first point that Drewby mentioned with just doing, uh, like if, if lineups aren't kind of along the, the macro, like the 3-3, three, three, you can feel more comfortable doing uh, a little bit more correlated stuff. So like those one five lineups where we're talking one favorite and five underdogs. So like for this coming up slate, if you were just playing Cooper Cup and five Bengals, I think with your five Bengals, you'd feel a little bit more, a little bit more comfortable properly correlating that lineup because such a small percentage of the field is going to be using that. Um, but like, I'm sure I've posted this, this chart somewhere that total percentage of lineups that use this type of onslaught is so, so low compared to how often they're finding their ways into the, into the top 1% finishing lineups. And that goes for something that like Adam and I have talked about on the showdown shows as well as two, four is kind of another one. It just goes back to this, this uh, general thought that the field feels really good about these three, three lineups. And thinking about this game, you can get Cooper Cup and Matt Stafford and maybe Cam Akers. And then on the other side, you've got T. Higgins and Joe Burrow and, you know, maybe another cheaper bangle there to make things work. But like you get this this field that feels really comfortable, these three, three lineups, and then feels really uncomfortable forcing these onslaughts. So they're really, really low owned. They don't they don't necessarily project as well either. So anyone that's using an optimizer to run 150 probably isn't getting a whole lot of them either. So I think that's one macro trend that that we should focus on not just for this game but going forward too is getting more comfortable like if the game gets a little bit sideways in one way or another like if the Bengals go out and win by 10 or 14 like is it possible that five of them are in the winning lineup and maybe it's just cup on the on the other side i think that's that's one way to think high level about how to approach this game specifically yeah and i think those outcomes occur like more frequently than people realize you know just underrating the chaos of a single game but it's not just that it's that that you can get paid off like you're making sort of like the optimal lineups in those scenarios whereas when the optimal lineup is a 3-3 you're competing you know you're not necessarily getting paid off because you're just competing with so many other people and again that that plays in a little bit with people overrating ceiling where i feel like they think like okay, well, I got to get, you know, the Bengal stack and the Ram stack and like hit the nuts. And it's like, you know, you, you, you get, you're trying to beat your opponents. You're not trying to get, get the highest score. Um, so Drewby, what mistakes do you think people are making or any thoughts on like the ceiling roster construction stuff? Yeah, I think the ceiling, like you said, 90th percentile is not going to happen every game, but usually there's going to be one player who hits his 75th or 90th and a lot of the other players won't. And so the ceiling matters. I think when you think about your captain or MVP selection more so than you think about the flex rules. Um, and so 
if a player delivers their ceiling at the captain, what does that mean for the rest of the roster? Um, I tend to agree that the field plays projections um, and they may alter their captain selections, but ultimately they're playing the projections. And so because of that, I think one of the edges I had early was constructing for alternate game scripts. I know Brian Jester, who I do or did podcast with frequently at showdown. He also played for alternate game scripts. I was usually playing for like a standard deviation, like one way or the other. So maybe I play for like, a Bengals win by three or a Rams win by 10 to 13, but I wasn't playing for a game going like 20 points under the total. Um, mm-hmm. But I think just generally the field is playing for the expected outcome more frequently than the expected outcome is going to occur. The field definitely still duplicates lineups way too much, um, maybe better than they have in the past, but a lot of people are using the full salary. They're using four or five marquee players that, that fit the rosters and are good values. And if you were building a cash game lineup, they're kind of the first people in there, but a lot of people are unwilling to kind of take the chance on the the third or even the fourth wide receiver. The guy might only play 20, 30% of snaps and they're not willing to kind of bet on the big plays happening. And while as an individual play, those, those don't get there that often when you consider all of the plays that look like that in the single game, um, it comes through more frequently than the, the field is typically playing them. And you brought up, the the ceiling mattering a bit more for captain choices. So I do want to talk about captain a little bit. Um, and also hinges on something else you said earlier about, you know, the field getting sharper with quarterback play, um, but also playing the projections. I think part of the reason in the past, the field overplayed quarterback in the captain spot was because by base projection, they're almost always going to have the highest projection on their team. But that's where you have to think through the range of outcomes where, okay, well, we've got, let's say we've got Burrow for 22 points and we've got T Higgins and Jamar Chase for like 18-ish each, you know, Tyler Boyd for 13. Like the odds of the pass catcher, one of the three pass catchers beating Burrow is more likely than not. So, and generally the quarterback, because they have a more consistent base production, the quarterbacks are going to be more expensive. So you're losing value in the captain spot and you have a good bet of them being like top three, which like, again, if you're playing small field or something, like maybe that matters a little bit more, but when we're after the pure nuts, the di- the dynamic shifts some where you, you want the top score. And especially if quarterbacks can be overplayed this late in the super bowl in particular, I don't Cody, it, it, the quarterback stuff seems tough because you've got two pretty firm pocket passers. I know we saw burrow move around a little bit the last game, but you know, his, rush yardage over under is like 10 yards. So um, what, what do you think about quarterback specifically in captain and just any other notes on your captain selection? Yeah, I looked at this before we hopped on because I was kind of curious how things shook out by the end of the year. Um, and when you kind of group out, because uh, I think we have to like look at quarterbacks in two bins, you kind of have to group out the Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Kyler and Jalen group from that because people know like the, the Konami code quarterbacks, if you will, that have the rushing upside get treated totally different in showdown than your standard pocket passers like we have in this slate. So once you group those guys out and you look at the remaining quarterbacks, like the, the Staffords and Burroughs that are true pocket passers or more so pocket passers, you you have seen a pretty, pretty big drop off in captain utilization. Like people are, I think, figuring that out, that you should play them in flex almost always, but um, that it's more more optimal to play the wide receivers and, and even tight ends in some cases, given the ownership that we're getting. Uh, as a captain, just because the pass catchers are more likely to outscore them if we get their, you know, 75th or 80th percentile ceiling. So 
Um, I'm a little bit more down on quarterbacks, but if we get to this point, like where we're starting to see, you know, sub 5% captain ownership projections on guys like Stafford at that point, it starts to make a little bit more sense for me. I think it, it becomes more important on how we play those captain quarterback lineups. Cause I think we're still seeing the field make big mistakes when they do play captain quarterback too much of the field is, is playing their captain quarterback teams with zero or one pass catchers. And like, when you think about how that's going to work, like if you have Matt Stafford as your captain and just pair him with Cooper cup, like it's so much more likely that if that, if that situation happens where both of those guys are in the optimal lineup, that it's, it's, and it's just those two that it's flipped that cup would be your optimal captain that Stafford would be in the flex. Um, so if you are playing captain quarterback, I highly would recommend uh, whether you've got Stafford in there, you will probably want two or more Rams pass catchers. And then similarly, similarly with Burrow, although he's got, you know, a little bit more rushing upside, but if you got Burrow as your captain, you want two or more Bengals pass catchers almost always. As far yeah. as kicker defense stuff, you know, talking about range of outcomes, like, do you ever play those in captain? I know Cody, you're always joking about the field overplaying DST and then you're just kind of accepting those burials, the few games where it happens. Um, you know, what's, what's your research shown at those positions? It's, it's tough because when it's uh, when it doesn't feel as optimal and we know how hard it is to project DST scoring, but when it doesn't feel as optimal, like in a game with a 48 and a half point total and good offenses like this one, uh, it's harder to allow those to naturally happen when you're running 150. But I think that's when it's better to do it, especially as cheap as they are in the slate. Uh, it's when the Patriots are like $6,400 and 12% owned at captain. Uh, that's that's like what I have a problem with is people just jam that in thinking they can accurately predict when, uh, you know, uh, we're going to get like two defensive touchdowns. Right. So it is more used by the field than it, than it does land in top one percent lineups, but it's pretty close. So I, I don't scoff at it as much as I used to um, just because I understand like the unique nature of doing it. I just think that that when people get really confident in using DST is like the absolute time to fade. And then in situations like this is where I'd be more okay, allowing it to happen naturally. Although I don't think it would happen much like on a slate like this, maybe two or 3% of each max, you know? Yeah. Drewby is the go Evan McPherson going to, I, I can see this dude's <laughs> ownership getting jacked up. He's got three. Like if you look at his game log, he's hit four field goals in three straight games. He's got the 50 plus yarders. Um, anything you you know you've uncovered with kickers or even I, i'm pretty sure they're negatively correlated like using them together um this is getting away from the captain in particular but even in the flex spots yeah so the captain like two things i'm looking for one is or i guess three things one is ceiling for the captain leverage in the field ability to build some type of correlation rules or at least understand how the field's going to correlate them i don't really get that with DST, maybe some correlation rules, you get it a little bit. And I don't really get that with kicker. And yeah. so even if there's like a, a edge case to make an argument that basically what you need to have happen is a lot of the studs in the slate have to put up good games, but within a tight range of each other. So it would mandate having all of them in the winning lineup. And therefore your low score allows you to squeeze players in there. And so it's just like, it, it takes a perfect storm. I, I typically don't do it. I think there is one chief slate where I might've done it um, earlier this year um, for like five lineups or something like that, but not typically using those guys in, in the captain spot. Um, I, I think yeah. the negative correlation, like I used to use hard groups on things like that, like the, you know, max one kicker or max, you know, one of the kickers in DST in the game got in away from that a little bit, rather use some key boost rules to, to negatively correlate. 
especially a slate like this, this slate is really starved for value. So yeah. both the teams run pretty condensed offenses, tight rotations, even as far as snap counts are concerned. And the backup tight ends, whether they start or their backups, they've been priced up. So um, there's not really a lot of value on the slate. And because of that, you can start to see some of the rules get broken and, and maybe see like two kickers being a bit more viable than I would typically think they are. Yeah. I want to talk about the lack of value in a second, but sticking with captain stuff. And you said you're correlating off of the captain is or not correlating, but knowing how the field's going to do it is like, right. Yeah, so yeah. one, one that's kind of interesting. I might be jumping to galaxy brain before covering the bases, but like I was already looking at like Cooper cup captain without Matthew Stafford, for example, where when you get these guys, I, there was a slate last year. I was really close to doing this and winning with Allen Robinson as captain on the bears without foals, which was a little bit of a different situation, but the, the alpha pass catchers that can, you know, with a full point per reception and a hundred yard bonus, you can get there almost without scoring in the captain spot, you know, cup in this game is probably going to have to score, but like, I don't know, like 10 for one thirty is, what um 26, 26 DraftKings yeah. points yeah you know or and even if he gets one touchdown and let's say you know in stafford you know that's fine like he could have 50 percent of the team's yards and an absurd amount of catches and really pull away and then like maybe the burrow you know stack goes off and um so that's one i think like normally you would say okay captain wide receiver my rule is going to be i have to use his quarterback um i think when you get a guy like cup where the yardage bonus and the sheer amount of volume of catches he can have as to his score, like that's, that's a spot where you could get unique. I think it helps to like, look back at historical rates on this stuff too, just to see how often the field is doing it, because this is something that I talked about. And I know Colin had thoughts on like, maybe it was last year or even two years ago um, that I was not necessarily recommending this, but something where I had stopped utilizing the, um, like absolutely locking in if captain wide receiver pair with the quarterback. I just stopped using that rule because I was seeing more of what you're talking about happen. Um, but with a little bit bigger sample, we've seen 85.2% of top 1% lineups uh, pair their captain wide receiver with the quarterback compared to just 77.4% of the field. So the field is doing like what you're talking about with cup more often than it's winning now. So you're not getting paid off as much in terms of like getting unique which is kind of flipped from a little bit before. So I don't know if more people are, are you know, trying to utilize that um, a little bit more than, than we would expect it to happen. Um, but you do get paid off with a, a little bit fewer dupes, like 9.8 dupes on average for captain wide receiver with the quarterback versus 4.9 on average for captain wide receiver naked, if you want to call it that. Um, so you are getting paid off a little bit, I guess, in that sense, but it's, it's just not happening, happening frequently enough compared to how often the field is using it. But Cup is like one of those guys that would be able to do it where he just accounts for so much of the team's receiving production that no one else scores well enough. And maybe maybe uh, Stafford doesn't do enough outside of just throwing to Cup to himself land in the optimal lineup. Yeah, yeah. I generally ahead. agree with that. I was just going to add, I think Field mostly will do it with a Cooper Cup or Devontae Adams. So they're more willing to do it when it's an alpha wide receiver with 30% plus target shares. They're a lot less willing to do it if it's Jamar Chase with Matthew Stafford, um, for example. So just some things to consider. And a lot of this stuff, like it's it's science and art. Like it, it depends. Are, are you going to ship the solo Millie in like, or are you trying to put together something that you think is 
you know, plus EV. And if you chop it like 50 ways for 20 K, like that's cool. Or 30 K um, that's cool. So part of that is just like, I guess, overall philosophy too. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, zooming out, I do think if you're playing more traditionally, if you have a captain wide receiver, you want the quarterback in flex, and then you also probably want to limit the amount of other teammates in flex, like just understanding that that receiver is going to, you, you know, take a, a high percentage of points. And then like, uh, as we hit on, if you're making the quarterback, the captain, it's almost the reverse where you probably want multiple uh, teammates in the flex because it's going to be multiple passing touchdowns, like we spread out, not to one person. Cause if it was to one person, that person would be the captain. Yeah. And I think a lot of people listening to this are probably playing for the, maybe for the first time where they're not, playing showdown 150 max all the time um and then there's some who are probably nerding out uh like cody and i have but i think the optimal way to play a wide receiver captain would be to pair him with a quarterback and pair him with at most one other pass catcher from their team that's probably what comes through the yeah. most consistently often still provides some positive leverage on the field and sets up and maximizes the correlation of the lineup a lot of nuances there but if if you're just looking for a simple way to maybe hand build a, a three max team um, that's kind of how I think about the wide receiver captains. Yeah, and I I've think seen, that one that one might seem intuitive, like just maxing out how many pass catchers you pair with your captain wide receiver, but it's it's really important and the and the data bears it out. Just seven point nine percent of top one percent captain wide receiver teams use two or more same team pass catchers. So like you talked about, if you're building a, a just a good sound single entry three max team, captain wide receiver plus quarterback and at most one wide receiver is, is a really, really, really strong lineup. Running back captain is tough where I think like there's an inclination to want to max one running back from the same team if you have captain running back. But with the, you know, especially for like a slate like this where the values starved a bit more and we've also got guys that are going to play passing downs kind of specifically, you know, like I don't think Samaje P. Ryan, you know, maybe catching three or four balls is going to prohibit Joe Mixon from being the captain running back. Um, anything you guys see at the running back position when using, you know, like a Mixon or Akers type at captain, uh, either generally or specific to this game? I think a lot of it comes down to like your total salary and then what they need to do to hit a 75th percentile or, you know, whatever, we're, whatever we're looking for. Let's just say we're aiming for a 75th percentile uh, and then their uh, salary adjusted output that they would need. And then their teammates salary adjusted output to also land in the same lineup. So, yeah, most often if, if you're just building sound, uh, really good correlated lineups for showdown against single entry three max captain running back uh, and then excluding their backups makes the most sense, but I think we've got a pretty compelling slate coming up and, and I don't know where we have the breakdown on the site between acres and Michelle, but like if you have an acres captain team and I think Michelle is Sonny Michelle is five K like, can he also do enough? If acres is the optimal captain to land in a winning lineup? Sure. He probably can. And then similarly with Mixon, I think he's uh, in the nine Ks and then P Ryan's one of the actual cheap values that we have on the slate. And we saw him break a 40 yard, touchdown pass last week like he doesn't have to do a whole lot to crack the optimal lineup in that case it's it's less likely to happen um but it's not something uh, specifically for the super bowl that i would be grouping out at all yeah the pricing's really tight and i want to talk about the the riffraff uh that that's what we call it in ffpc <laughs> like uh these low probability chance of hitting players but in 
the showdown format, I think they matter. Whereas if you're playing a main slate, let's say like someone like, you know, Ben Scournick or like that, even take Ben Scournick out of it, but like just any like really fringy player who maybe is in the optimal lineup, let's say 3% of the time, and they're going to get played 0% of the time. Like in theory, that'd be positive leverage, but it's not worth it on a main slate where it's like, okay, 3% of the time, maybe you're gaining like one or two points on the field. No one's hitting the nuts anyways. When you're playing showdown, it doesn't matter by how many points you win by if you hit the nuts. And if one of these, you know, really cheap guys, like let's say Tyler Higby's out and, um, you know, Perkins come, oh, actually they, or not Perkins, Hopkins, let's say Hopkins at 200, just, you know, catches a few balls. Like it's a tight slate, like his it, two for 20 could get in the optimal lineup and you're not really care about the, you know, the raw total of points. So in general, how many of like the fringy guys do you use? Usually we get more. There's not a lot. Like I'm looking on this slate, the f- guys I would consider real fringe would be if Uzama and Higby are out, everyone understands that Sample and Blanton are the value tight ends on each team, but the second tight ends are going to play. Uh, I think it was Mitchell Wilcox who played for Cincinnati last week after Uzama went down. Uh, Hopkins, I think, is expected to be the second guy. I don't believe he was even active last week, uh, he, but would expect it to be the second guy if Higby's out. Um, usually we get some other wide receivers too, but on the Cincinnati side, like, you know, Mike Thomas might play a snap, but like he's, I, I think he's an X out guy. But Scournick, I mentioned because he will actually get a few opportunities. I mean, he almost had a long touchdown last game. He will see the field. Van Jefferson doesn't seem like he's 100%. Um, so how do you approach those types of players in general? And then on the slate, like, am I missing anyone? Um, or is it just, you know, those three as far as like the pure punts? Yeah, I would say generally um, the field has started playing those guys a bit more during the regular season, but I think the Super Bowl especially is going to be an influx of more casual people and and they're definitely not going to be playing a lot of these guys. They don't have to do much either is the thing. They don't even have to score a touchdown. So in the San Francisco um, LA game, Trent Sherfield was one point off of the optimal lineup with a zero. Mohamed Sanu was one point off the optimal lineup with a zero. Either those guys catches a pass or gets a jet sweep for 0.2 yards. And all of a sudden you're looking at the potential for a solo win. And so you want guys that are seeing the field, obviously. Um, so uh, that is an important thing or have potential to see the field, but they, they don't have to catch a touchdown. And then especially when you talk about these tight end twos, like they're going to be involved in a lot of these goal line pass, you know, packages with play actions. Like Tommy Sweeney was one of the Buffalo guys that, was um, pretty close to to banking like a solo showdown earlier. And so I definitely am really interested in the guys who are involved at the goal line, the tight end twos in the offense. But I think you can even go deeper than that, especially if they're priced cheap. They don't really have to do very much. They just need the the right price skill guys to blow up. And then all they might need is a single, you know, catch or, or run. So the, the Trent Taylor two point conversion could get you there. And I mean, it's, I was just messing around with different lineups to like get a feel like you throw in like a Burrow Higgins chase stack, like with none of those guys, even at captain and like, I mean, you're up against it and that's, that's a pretty reasonable, you know, pairing to want to start with. So it is, it is tight. And so to Drewby's point, if the right game plays out and the volume is concentrated on some of these expensive players, 
off catch might get it done. Um, Cody, how do you view the riffraff? Yeah, I'm curious, like Colin's thoughts on this too, because I haven't actually looked a whole lot into the data on like how often these guys crack the optimal lineups and like what the, what type of game environments they do crack optimal lineups in. But like intuitively, my thought is if they are, it's probably in a, in a lower scoring game environment where like the one jet sweep for 10 yards or like the two point conversion catch or, you know, the one catch for five yards and a touchdown uh, is, is it crack. the studs going off though? Don't you think? So like if you have a, if you have a high scoring game environment, right. Won't you get enough of those in theory, right. Won't you get enough of those four or five, six K guys that score close enough to the studs? Like, won't we get enough of the Van Jeffersons and Blanton's if he's in and, or, or would it just be the situation where it's Chase, Cup? I do think it's like these tweener games where there's going to be enough scoring from high-priced players, but they're not easy to fit in together. Sure. And they all score kind of similarly, so you need them all. Um, yeah. And right. and the like you said, you can't have like the McCall Hardman or Demarcus Robinsons putting up like 15 points. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if, you know, if, whoever the backup, if Hopkins catches a touchdown in this game, I'd feel pretty confident he's in the optimal lineup, especially yeah. if, you know, if you're dipping into like the quarterback double stack and you need salary, it's like a pretty nice way to punt it is also just to toss like one of the, you know, zero to 2% owned punts on their team into that lineup, get a little bit of correlation in there. If they throw the three, four touchdown game, um, you, you have a punt as well. Yeah, and those guys will be super low owned. Like sometimes there's some name value to like these sub 1K guys, but Scourneck and these backup tight ends who we don't even know uh, are going to play. Like there, it's going to be sub two three percent ownership, which is which is really nice. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. The, the I know we both are 150 max guys. The, the single entry dynamics are pretty interesting too because if there's an obvious value, um, and I'm not sure who the best example of that would be in this game. Maybe it's one of the kickers, or, or um, maybe it's like Tyler Boyd, but those guys in single entry go through the roof. So like in those chiefs games, if like Demarcus Robinson is a thousand dollars cheaper than me, Hardman yeah. Robinson and single entry will be like 60% owned and, and Hardman will be like 5%. Um, and so that I think is a pretty interesting thing to think about as well. Same thing at the quarterback level. Like Mike, you want to, you want to play a Thunderdome showdown. I bet you get <laughs> burrow at 2%, 3%. Like people just aren't going to play the quarterback captain on the underdog in the single entry environment. And what's interesting is I don't need to hit the nuts, right? Like Burrow could have a real, really strong game. And like, I don't have to choose between, you know, Chase or Higgins as my captain play, right? Like, you know, or I guess it'd even be hard to double stack down with Burrow at captain because the price is so tight. But you, like I could get that leverage with Burrow having a huge game. Maybe a wide receiver is more optimal than he is, but in a small field, you know, I don't need every single point. Like I might've gained enough on my opponents that I make up for not having the optimal. And I have the guy that's more likely to be like a top five captain piece. Who's, who's way too low owned. Um, so I do think the single entry stuff's interesting. Cody, you had said you wondered if you were going too unique for like the smaller field, single entry stuff, you know, we're having trouble there. And I feel that because it does feel like there's, an unlimited amount of ways to get different. You know, you can try all those in, in 150, but it's like, do I go different at captain or like, do I play the chalk captain and like just play one of these value guys that's just flip one of the value guys that's going to be different? It it does like that's the trouble I've had when I wanted to play 
Um, and that that that's the type of showdown I do want to play more consistently moving forward is less of the MME stuff and more of the single entry stuff. But it's how do I, I guess, hone in on, you know, the, the best pivot to make when there's like a laundry list of potential items. Yeah. And I think the things that we talked about with large field in, in multi-entry with everyone using optimizers and 150 maxing and dipping deeper into the player pool, like you don't have that problem with single entry, especially if you're, if you're planning on playing the dome for this one, you're not going to have that problem. But I think uh, in the large field stuff, you're seeing combinations of all of the things that we talked about today, like the uncorrelated pairings and leaving salary on the table and uh, balancing ownership and finding these super low on punts to use. Like you need to combine all of that generally in a single lineup to get unique in single entry. I think I'm doing too much of that where like you can do just one or two of pull one or two of these levers. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's leaving salary on the table, but still building a really good correlated lineup. Maybe it's doing like what Drewby mentioned and just flipping uh, captains where we're in the dome uh, wide receiver captains going to get outsized projections in terms of ownership and burrow would be really low. And I don't think you just need to, you need to go as crazy because uh, we're so fo so hyper focused on being unique and showdown, I don't think you need to go as crazy in the single entry three max smaller field stuff. And I think that's probably been my biggest problem. But just focusing on pulling one or two of those levers, whether it's ownership or finding the one pivot or salary, just not not getting way off the board in these smaller field things because you can still build good lineups while not being duped. But yeah, to Drewby's point, it, it is going to be like a main slate when all the cash games guys get condensed in the small field single entry stuff you know people are playing their cash game lineups like so there's going to be opportunities that that condensing might even happen at a higher rate like like i'm very curious what cooper cup would project to be in a small field in terms of ownership like i imagine 100 it'll be yeah like yeah and the pricing so the one. <laughs> like i mean the pricing's so tight that i'm like well if the you know if the burrow double goes off you know or i don't know so it's um, I wish cup was a little bit more expensive, actually. Uh, it's pretty crazy looking at the, this is a tangent, but the cup Stafford game logs, I, you know, cup doesn't have very many games where he didn't beat Stafford and yeah. it, the ones that he didn't were, were close at least last that, that I looked, I maybe didn't see the full set, but, um, pretty, pretty nuts for a wide receiver quarterback combination. Um, all right. So we're, we just talked about getting unique, but getting unique in these large field tournaments. We've dabbled a little bit about leaving some salary on the table. Um, maybe even decorrelating sometimes, you know, I know there were slates with Kansas city. I, th I think you mentioned this column, but there were slates with Kansas city where I'd play, you know, Tyreek and Kelsey without Mahomes, where they actually became some of the higher projected lineups I could play that I didn't expect to be duped. And, First of all, like the way to even figure out if you're going to be duped, um, the sum product ownership seems to be like the best way where you're literally just multiplying the projected ownerships of the six spots in your lineup times the number of entries in the field, especially when you're talking, was it like a 400,000? I mean, they kind yeah, 450,000 or 470,000. It's crazy. But then one thing I learned from Drewby was to make some adjustments to those projected dupes where if I was leaving salary on the table, you know, I lowered the likelihood of those teams being duped. If there were some correlations, you know, flags that weren't met, I lowered the likelihood. And that was a real big improvement in my MME set back when I was playing it a little bit more consistently because I had been almost going too far 
and I was actually like Xing out some really good lineups that weren't being played a lot, you know, because they left salary on the table where they weren't correlated in a certain way. So like functionally, if I'm trying to, you know, limit the amount of lineups that I, I'm playing that are dupe, you know, what do I actually do to Ruby? Yeah. So I think you kind of nailed it. You basically have the product of the ownership of the individual players. So whatever the captain projected ownership percent is, and then the flex percent, you know, projected ownership percents for the other players, multiply that together, use some type of correlation coefficient. So if you want to do the QB, you know, wide receiver with their QB, maybe it's 0.85 if you stack them and 0.15 if you don't. And then you have some type of salary multiplier based on how much salary you're leaving on the table. And those, I think, are the three things. If you multiply that by the field size, you're going to get directionally in the right area. Um, for the QBs, if you're stacking them, I think you can do some interesting things. You know, if you single stack or double stack, like maybe maybe Stafford's 10%, but Stafford double stacks are actually only going to be used by 40% of the Stafford people. And so you could do some things there where or the triple stacks are used by like five to 10%. And so you can do some things there where even if the individual Rams wide receivers are popular, the combination of the, the triple stack will make it less. So, so I think those are kind of functionally the things you're looking at. Obviously you got to be a bit of a spreadsheet nerd to get down to that level. Um, and I think the biggest thing you said though, is the product of the ownership. And so like one, 1% guy in a 20% guy is, is going to make a pretty big difference. Um, even if the, the 20% guys more popular, like that's going to be a lot less duped than if you're going with like two 10% guys, um, just as a off the cuff example. Cody, any uh, follow up there? Yeah. And I think like for people that don't, we just talked about product ownership and, and I think most people get it at this point, especially if you're, if you're grinding showdown hard, but I, if you're, if you're using optimizers or if you just heard people talk in the past, most people talk about total ownership or cumulative ownership, and that's far less predictive of, product ownership or then product ownership is of predicting how many dupes you should have. So there's a 0.55 R squared between product ownership and number of dupes, which is really pretty strong when we're talking about just one single variable and a 0.26 R squared between total ownership and dupes. So it's just one of those mechanisms that you can, that you can use that like Drewby talked about two 10% guys in the same lineup is way different than one 20% guy and one 1% guy or on a bigger scale, like two 40% guys, equal 80% total ownership and a 75% guy and a 5% guy equals 80% ownership. But the product ownership is way different for those two groupings. And the other thing, like if you're, if you're playing these lineups that like Drewby talked about with Matt Stafford, with three pass catchers that aren't going to be used by a whole lot of the field, I don't think you need to go crazy in your remaining spots because you're already kind of unique enough that like you don't need to leave in those lineups 5k on the table or something like that, or like then roster another 2% guy, on top of that, just understanding like how many of these uniqueness levers you need to pull on any individual lineup is going to help you actually build good lineups that are still unique without building these crazy way off the board lineups that have a really low probability of winning. But yeah, you're unique because you've done all these things like you've done the Stafford triple stacks with 3K left on the table and you've got a 2% owned guy. Great, you're unique, but it's really, really pro low probability of winning. Like if you're just doing these things in conjunction with each other when they make sense, on the right lineups, then I think you've got a good chance of being unique while still building strong correlated lineups. Yeah. And Drewby, I believe Jester, um, who you had talked about earlier, who will play some extreme game scripts, actually solo took down the million last time the Rams were in the Super Bowl 
which ended up being an extreme game script, like the absolute dud game between the Rams and the Patriots. Uh, I hit Julian Edelman 20 to one at MVP after being yelled at about how it was impossible for him to win MVP. So that felt good, but not as good as a uh, solo bacon. Solo <laughs> so, you know, my uh, $20 bet on an offshore betting site wasn't quite as fulfilling as I'm sure Jester's. I think he had a no quarterback lineup. It was. Um, yeah. So yeah. The, the equivalent for this game would be the, the Cooper cup, no QBs couple pass catchers in there running back touchdown game goes under the total. I don't remember if he had a D in there or not, but um, they're, they're definitely, it's an extreme game script, but it happens sometimes. And, and when it does, and you're right, it's definitely, it, it's rewarding to get that right. Yeah. I'm envisioning This isn't as crazy, but I could see like acres captain with, with cup and flex, no other Rams and like bring back four Bengals, something like that. It's, you know, obviously nothing quite at the level that Jester did. Um, it's hard for me to see. It just seems like this game. I mean, you could, you could like plausibly see uh, a cup captain Rams D is able to get after burrow. You know, they get six, seven sacks, a couple turnovers acres scores or acres or Sony Michelle scores a touchdown. And then you've got a couple of pass catchers or skill guys on the Bengals that, you know, put up 12 to 15 points. Like there are yeah. scenarios where you can talk yourself into it. It's obviously low probability, but not entirely out of the question. Yeah. I was also thinking about the, the gal brain captain on the uh, one side of the onslaught, uh, which we've seen at times. I think Saquon Barkley did it. Um, James Robinson. James Robinson. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard for Cup to do that, though. I feel like uh, maybe not. I don't know. Um, I just feel like the way the Rams play, that like either Stafford or Acres would get in there because like Acres is pretty cheap. But uh, those, those alpha games on the team that yeah, Acres fumbling a couple times in the red zone two weeks ago, and then you know hurt yeah, last game. Up. Like there's a there's a path. I mean, Sony Michelle is going to be one of those guys who's going to be five to ten percent. Like talk about like hand building a lineup or using an optimizer. You don't want to build a deduping template to do some product ownership. It's way too much work. You just create like a group of these guys that are, you know, 15% or lower owned and have one of them in your lineups. And that's going to get you a, a low, some product ownership, just the way that you structure um, kind of into Sony Michelle for like the, the low owned lineups. Cool. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like into playing the Bengals chasing where I think people underestimate the amount of fantasy points the chasing team can get. Um, yeah. You know, where the, you know, the volume or the scoring is somewhat concentrated uh, on the team that's winning and they're more efficient. So sometimes like you're not racking up catches, you're not racking up plays, like give me Cincinnati, like 70 plays Burroughs throwing a bunch. And, you know, I don't care if he's just completing a bunch of five, six yard, passes uh you know a lot of Bengals can get there if he's gonna have to complete a ton of those yeah you talk about how good those like two four underdog heavy teams are and, and a lot of the reason why is because they're cheaper and when they're chasing they're throwing more and, and that's obviously good on ppr sites like DraftKings. so the the underdog in this situation doesn't even need to necessarily win uh, but like you said if they're chasing and racking up ppr volume and then the other side is just condensed around cup and stafford or cup and acres then you're you're in a really good spot well, damn, guys! I feel like we've we've covered a ton. Uh, any any other things you like want to get out there before we shut this down, either macro or specific to the Super Bowl? 
No, it's good to, to good to finally finally pod with the guy that I've looked up to in, in the showdown streets for a long time. Uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, the the all game script stuff is is really good. I think it's really important. It's also just fun to think through. You know, we talked about some of that, but getting yourself into these four two underdog builds or five one favorite builds, I think is a really good way to think about the Super Bowl. Whether you're using an optimizer or hand building, also kind of glossed over it a little bit, but Cody did just cover it. Think about the actual game script that happens when that scenario happens as well, right? Like you're not going to get Sony Michelle as like the one Ram on, on the comeback. You're probably going to get the, the pass catching back or the wide receivers in those lineups. And, you know, even if a, a team like San Francisco is a good example, they love to play run heavy when they're ahead, but they're willing to throw when they're behind. And so if you're playing an onslaught against the Niners, that's where you can get like Ayuk into those lineups. And I think those things, still go overlooked a little bit just because it's hard to construct rules and parameters around those. Um, but they're an important consideration. I feel like all this talk makes me want a super galaxy brain to the point where I want to be like Evan Silva hand in the dirt and just like hand build a bunch of lineups <laughs> in the MME contest. So I can have full control or the gal brain projected game script of each lineup versus uh, leaving it up to the opto gods. But that's the problem with having two weeks is like you can just be laying in bed and just like firing off lineups that you know are probably bad because you're not looking at projections or, or using an optimizer or as levitan would say you're just a phone shitter bro like oh that's yeah you get into problems <laughs> i have a, a cousin who I've, I've i've told him you cannot play like classic main slate dfs because he's like a casual football fan has these super strong opinions but like has no idea value but he somehow does well as you know a phone shitter lineup maker on these <laughs> single showdown slates because he really funnels the energy of like one team's going to kill the other team right and i think like <laughs> just by falling into onslaughts he's like actually kind of good at showdown it's insane that's uh, that's a tangent though but yeah uh thanks so much druby for hopping on uh, you as well, Cody. Again, Cody's article is going to be up. Uh, he's got the, the Pro Bowl article up, God's Game, being played this weekend, if you want to check that out. But next week, he'll have the uh, the article everyone's really looking for, for the Super Bowl. We'll also do an Establish the Run Showdown episode on the main feed next week that's hyper-specific to the Super Bowl. We're really going to get into the different strategies for... you, you got to check out cody's stuff too it just not blowing smoke up his ass but uh his showdown content is above and beyond i think anybody else's main slate content so it's one man but i think that the twitter graphics and everything are incredible it's really insightful um stuff and i think it's changed the way a lot of people have approached things so um hopefully one of us gets the uh the big super bowl win but i know cody will steer people in the right direction high praise after i end recording though these two are going to be bickering over who's actually going to win the million dollars between the two of them uh but no it's been, it's been awesome to have two showdown goats on here i think this can be a really helpful show for people uh, if you are on the main established the run again this is uh podcast feed this is a simulcast episode of establish the edge you can check out my podcast on itunes establish the edge they're also all uploaded to youtube on the establish the run channel uh, give us likes, whether it's on YouTube or iTunes, that helps a ton, reviews, all that. Appreciate it. And good luck, everybody, in your Super Bowl showdown contests.